Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Welcome to The Last Word. My name is Paulina. I'm on staff here at Crosstalk. And with me today, we actually are changing it up a little bit. JD is gone. And so instead, we have Johnny here, who's the Crosstalk intern. Johnny, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for my first podcast here. I know. It's a big deal. Big. The first last word for you. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's complicated. (laughs) Um, But really, because of where we are in the book of Acts, I thought it would be a good time to kind of zoom out from just last week's message that JD gave Mm -hmm. and to talk about the three themes that he mentioned on Thursday. Um, And so those that he gave were that Jesus is alive. Uh, The second one is that the promised Holy Spirit has come and he enables the mission. And then the third is that the gospel is going out from Judea, from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and into the world and how we can really see those three things in the book of Acts. So I wanted to ask you first, as we've been in this series for a month, maybe which of those themes has stuck out to you uh, the most so far? Yeah, I would say the promised Holy Spirit has come to enable the mission. I think that has stuck out to me the most just because of the whole enablement of the Holy Spirit. I feel like is a concept that a lot of people don't really get to grasp until they really step into Christianity Mm -hmm. and into the discipleship part of it because you're wondering what's your role in being a Christian and furthering God's kingdom. And then that doesn't really come from you doing the works on your own, but rather waiting for the Holy Spirit to enable you to do that because, you know, he'll provide all the things that come with the Holy Spirit with like joy, peace, and uh, love. And I mean, that's kind of our mission is to love. Mm, Yeah, totally. I think for me, the, what keeps, what I've been going back to just last week is that Jesus is alive. I think that's so, because of the way that we have Jesus's earthly time here Mm. written down, I think I realize how much I talk about him in the past tense and then looking at the book of Acts and thinking Mm. Jesus is alive, you know, and that's why the book of Acts and everything that comes after it exists has been a really, um, yeah, just a really cool revelation for me and remembering that Mm -hmm. that's why everything that we're seeing happen in the book of Acts, even through so much persecution, um, that's why everything we're seeing happen happens because Jesus is alive. And like you said, he sent the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so. that's cool. I, I hadn't really thought of how we have him in history and how we mm-hmm. talk about him in past tense so much. Yeah, I actually, with that, I was going to ask you too, you kind of answer this, um, but how do you think these themes that we're looking at relate to our lives now in the current, like what's the, what do you think is the value of looking at something like the book of Acts and how that relates to us personally? Yeah, I mean, the book of Acts, it kind of, for me at least, it's like, you know, you can be led to Jesus, be led to be baptized, you know, be on Mm -hmm. that church high after, you know, a church camp or something. But then it's like, okay, what now? Like, what comes next? Mm -hmm. And we can also look at the church and be like, what direction are you supposed to be going? And I think that Acts really captures that in that it's the beginning stages of Christianity, really, in the church. 
And so I think it really relates to us today to see like, okay, what's the next steps I need to be taking? Mm. And it shows like, okay, how am I supposed to love? How am I supposed to do what Jesus calls us to do? Mm. And that's, you know, to just preach boldly and to love others and, you know, to love the tax collector. And Mm. I think it's really well displayed, you know, as we're reading about like Peter and John so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think it really does seep into everything um, that we do now. And also just a little add in from uh, JD's message last week. I really thought how he ended with, uh, well, the last part of the verses that he ended with talking about them saying like, well, let this like let this whole Jesus movement thing ride itself out because if it's from humans, mm. it'll fail. Yeah. And thinking how I literally am here and you're here because of God using not only the fact that Jesus is alive, but enabling us with the Holy Spirit to go out from that one city in that one time into all of the earth um, for all time. So how yeah. awesome. That is really cool. I, I definitely that struck me different when J.D. said that. <laughs> that, you know, it says in Acts, you know, like that it was going to fail if it's man's mm-hmm. plan, but not if it's mm-hmm. God's plan. And yeah, yeah we're a yeah. living testament of that. That is so cool. Yeah, for sure. As we uh, look forward to the next end of the semester of mm-hmm. Acts, um, what are you looking forward to or even just interested in learning about as you listen yeah, I'm interested to see um, just the disciples and how they use the Holy Spirit more and more in different situations. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, I see that no matter what we're going to do in life, whether that is to be a pastor, say, but like comparing that to like saying just work at fast food or work, you know, mm-hmm. in, you know, the big world in business or whatever it may be that like, how are we going to use the, you know, Holy Spirit in those situations when, you know, we're talking to an atheist coworker or mm-hmm. whenever we're, you know, faced with challenges in our own life. Mm-hmm. And just to see how we can relate to the disciples and their use of the Holy Spirit during that time. Mm-hmm. And um, just more examples of how to like, you know, love people and uh, how to just navigate, you know, Jesus and like what his, you know, resurrection on the cross really meant to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so feels like a really great time to take all the practical things out of it because it's so clear. It's written right there for us what we're to do and how we can learn from how they lived. So for sure, yeah. Um, I think just to end this last word, um, as we look into this coming week, it's actually going to be a really big shift where we've been talking about witnessing, you know, and it's been in Jerusalem and then how it's, it's about to go out. We're opening that next chapter as it goes out into Judea and Samaria. And then at the end of the semester, we're going to look at um, how it goes beyond. So I'm excited for this week. Thanks for listening to the last word, Johnny. Thanks for being here. Yeah, and thanks for having me. My name is JD. If you guys are here for the first time, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be with you guys. I'm the I'm the privilege of serving as the crosstalk pastor here with Cypress Creek Church, and I'm really. Uh, it's amazing how I, I was reflecting on the fact that at this point in my life, I have been a professional Christian for 10 years at this point in time, meaning I've been in ministry for 10 years. Someone has been paying me to do this, and I'm blessed enough to have been able to do this for the last 10 years of my life. And over those 10 years, part of the gig, right, is that you spend a lot of time reading God's Word. 
and reading stories and have, as being a kid who grew up in the church, I've read these stories over and over and over again over the years. And what I was reflecting on this week is that every time I enter into reading the scriptures, there's something new for me. And it really struck me this week as I was preparing and looking at passages that I've read so many times. And as I was preparing, I, I really feel like in this season of my life, I have struggled with my words recently. And I don't mean like speaking, but I mean in the sense that I feel like I've lost my train of thought a lot. Like I'll get down a train of thought and then have no idea how I got there or where I was planning on going with. Or I'll stumble over my words, and a lot of that is just, in a, in a sense, I think my brain is processing faster than I can actually get words out. And so I'm in this, in this deal where it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so frustrated by the conversations that I'm having because it feels like they stop and start when you do that, right? When you can't remember where you were going or what you were talking about, the, the conversation just kind of jumps, and it's, it's not smooth, and it's not easy and it's in those things I was even thinking about, like with Paulina the last couple of weeks. There have been several times where I've walked up to Paulina and I've said, I have something to tell you. And I completely lost what that was by the time that I made it here. And that's just like from coming across the room where my brain has already moved on to the next thing. And I haven't even gotten out what I really needed to tell them. And it's in those Bases that I think that sometimes when we are people who are reading the Bible, we can actually get into a similar sort of mindset where we get to a point and we're reading something and you just stop for a second. And you're like, wait, what, what is going on? Like I, I get halfway through reading a chapter. I'm like, I, I have no idea what's happening anymore. Or I get to a point where I'm like, I know that there's a common theme here, but I can't follow it. Like I, I lost the theme in here and where are they and what's going on? And I get to these sorts of points and I think that it sometimes happens because we oftentimes read in bits and pieces, right? So we'll read one to two chapters at a time, maybe sometimes even less than that. And so we're never really picking up the full storyline where we would if we were to sit down and read the entire book of Acts all the way through you would understand the narrative in the same way that you would pick up a book and read a book, and you're like, I know exactly what happened, right? And so what I wanted for us to do here before we hopped in is really to take a second and revisit the themes that we talked about when we started here in the book of Acts. Because those things are still being played out, but oftentimes we just forget what we're looking for, right? And so I'm going to lay them out for us, and the first of which is a very basic thematic element to this, but it's crucial. It's that Jesus is alive. That he died, that he was buried, that he was raised from the grave, that he appeared to many, and then that he ascended and now is at the, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, right? That's the first basic theme. If you look at any of the teaching that happens from the apostles in the book of Acts, there is always starts with the basic building block of Jesus is alive. Everything else flows from that. The second theme that we see in the book of Acts is that the promised Holy Spirit has come and it enables the mission in fulfillment of divine promise. And what I mean by divine promise is that Jesus promised it would come, right? And so the Holy Spirit has come and it is enabling the apostles then to go out and carry out the mission that God 
has for them. And the third piece to the thematic elements here in the book of Acts is that the message of the kingdom is to go out to all of the world. That has always been the intent. And you see that starting in Acts 1.8, when Jesus tells the apostles that it's going to start in Jerusalem, then it's going to go to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the, ends of the earth. And so those are our three basic building blocks that we're looking for, and we're really paying attention to as we look at the book of Acts. And last week, we looked at the story of a man who sat outside of the temple in Jerusalem, right? And he was sitting there every day he went, he would beg. And he would beg, and all of a sudden, John and Peter walk by, and he asks them for money. Simple ask, right? Do you have any money? And Peter responds to him and says, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I have, I give to you. Then he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. He got a lot more than he bargained for in that instance. And so the man then stands up and he walks. And the story tells us that he was over 40 years old. So he hadn't walked for 40 years. And he gets up and it's understandably astonishing to the crowd that is around him. And so a crowd starts to gather around Peter and around John. And at this point in time, John then Uh, Peter then, excuse me, gets up and he starts to preach. And as he's preaching, the, uh, the religious leaders come and they arrest Peter and John. And they bring them before the council. And they basically say, why are you doing that? Like, stop it. It's like kind of the, the slap on the wrist, right? And what happens is that Peter responds and he tells them, we can't help it. We can't help but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. And so the story tells us that then the religious leaders just try to threaten them and then they send him home and they send him home. And that's there in uh, Acts chapter five, Acts chapter four, excuse me. And then when we turn the page and we go to Acts chapter five, what we see is that all of the apostles and all of the believers used to meet together at, uh, it was called Solomon's colonnade. And this is an area in the temple. And so the all of the believers that would go and they would gather here in this space. And the apostles all performed many signs and wonders among the people. And more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number daily. And so what we're seeing here is that the apostles are preaching the gospel. They're doing these signs. They're doing these wonders. And we're seeing people come to know Jesus in this space. And as a result, people, it says, brought their sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from towns around Jerusalem. So now we're seeing the broadening of the mission of God here. So it's going from Jerusalem to the surrounding towns. And so these surrounding towns, they're bringing people in. And it says that what they're doing is they're bringing their sick and they're bringing those tormented by impure spirits and all were healed. All were healed. And so we're going to pick up the story here in Acts chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 17. And it says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. 
Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and they reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed by them, wondering how this could happen. Then someone came and told them, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to speak in this name. Yet you here, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they being the high priests, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might be even found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonesty for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. And this story shows us that the remarkable success the apostles had in sharing the gospel in the city of Jerusalem ultimately led to their arrest. And the question as I read this that is burning in my mind is why does all of this happen? Why does this all of this happen? And very simply, if we look right back to the first verse in this section of scripture, verse 17, it tells us that the religious leaders got jealous of the apostles, so they arrested them. It very easily, it says the word jealous. They arrested them because of jealousy. And jealousy in this context can be thought of as misguided zeal. Misguided zeal, or in other words, intense negative feelings over someone else's achievements or successes. To put it into our modern language, it's the, it's my ball and I'm going home, right? Like you just get mad because somebody else beat you in your game in the neighborhood and she said, it's my ball, I'm going home. 
That's, that's what happens here. They just get jealous and they get upset. And so that what they do is they arrest the apostles. And we need to unpack this to understand it a little bit more. Here at this point in his history, the Sadducees finally have what they want. The Sadducees have historically been a, a minority religious group. And so finally they control the high council. So they have the religious power, but at this time they've also worked with the Romans and they have all of this political power. And so they are at the height of their power as a group of people. And what they really want is to maintain that power and control. That's what they're concerned with is maintaining their power and control. And anything that destabilizes this structure could threaten that power and control, right? And so in the apostles, what they sense is a loss of power or a loss of control. And so they react out of this jealousy to maintain that power that they've created for themselves. Their jealousy is based on the fact that the apostles are growing in influence over the people. And the apostles and their message of Jesus really represent a major irritant and a perceived assault on that authority that they've worked for so long to create. And this event is really an expansion of the attempts to suppress the name of Jesus since Jesus was walking the earth. We see that ultimately these religious leaders kill Jesus in an attempt to suppress him. And then when we go through the book of Acts, we see that first it's just Peter and John. And the religious authorities are trying to take steps just to keep those two quiet. And now we see that it broadens out to all of the apostles, and they're trying to keep the apostles quiet. And it's this escalation of, of what's going on here. And so they're trying to maintain, as it says that the Lord adds to their number daily, those who are being saved, they're trying, they're freaking out. And so they're trying to create this sense of power and control over what's happening in the city of Jerusalem. And it's really easy in these instances to point the fingers at, at those religious leaders, at the Sadducees, right? It's like at the end of a football play when you see some guy just jump on the pile late. That's what we want to do, right? It's like, we just want to jump on the pile and you're like, yeah, go get those guys. Those guys are awful. But the issue is when it comes to something like jealousy, we can't really point the finger at everybody else because we all have our own issues with jealousy in our life, right? We have to point the finger at ourselves. And because it doesn't play out in a historic like way where it's written down forever and we're going to read 2,000 years from now how JD was jealous about something, we think it's not a big deal. And so we brush over it and we like to point the finger at other people. And so what I want to do today is I want to take a look at jealousy a bit more closely to start to understand how it works in our lives and in our hearts, and then how we take some steps to correct that. And really there are two characteristics of jealousy that I wanna talk about today. And the first of which is that jealousy closely watches the successes of others. Jealousy closely watches the success of others and it asks these questions, why not me? Why them? What is so special about them? And why should others enjoy something that I don't? In a sentence, 
It can be, I deserve that, right? I deserve it and I didn't get it. They got what I deserve. And jealousy has an element of desire in it. Somebody has an advantage or a benefit in life and you want that thing to happen to you. And the thing that makes jealousy bad is that the desire that we feel is tinged with resentment that is going well for someone else and not for you. So in a sentence, jealousy is the mingling of a desire for something with the resentment that somebody else is enjoying it while you aren't, right? Things aren't going well for you and they're going well for someone else. And so it just gnaws at you sometimes. It just eats away at you why somebody else can get the benefit that you feel like you deserve. And what happens is when we are closely watching the successes of others, we can't love other people well. Jealousy really tightens down on our hearts and kills our freedom to love people because we're only concerned with ourselves, right? Poor pitiful me, I deserve that. And so we become resentful of someone else and it's in that space that we're, we're only thinking about ourselves. We're, we're self-centered and we are selfish in our actions. Now, the second characteristic of jealousy is that it usually operates very close to home. When I say very close to home, it, that means that with those people with whom we share the most are the ones that we most often resent. That could be our family. It could be our friends. It could be the people that we surround ourselves with, that we have shared hobbies and interests with. And it's, jealousy is really, really strong when it takes hold. Jealousy wants not me to get what somebody else has, but it wants somebody else to be as unsuccessful as I am, right? Most of the time with jealousy, it's not that I want to be elevated. It's that I want somebody else to be de-escalated with me, right? That it's like, if I can't have that, then they shouldn't either. So they should come down to my level as opposed to me also getting it and moving up to theirs. It's all about bringing other people down. When I was climbing a lot, um, for a season of my life, I had this really dedicated climbing partner. And he and I, I was living in Austin, and we drove out, and we went to Reimer's Ranch probably twice a week. We're making the drive and we're climbing for hours at a time with one another. And so he and I had very similar ability levels. We had similar capabilities. And so what we would do is we would go and we would try new things together. We wanted to push our limits. We wanted to see how good and how strong of a climber we could be. And so we would go and we would decide we're going to work on this. This is going to be our project. And hopefully someday I can climb this one route and I will feel really successful. And what would happen is that we would show up, we'd warm up, and then I would try the route, and I would fall, and then I would come down, and my buddy, who has been a friend of mine for 12 years now, somebody that I care very deeply about, he would go up on the route, and he would try. And externally, I'm saying, like, yeah, man, you got it. You got it, dude. Like, hopefully, you got it. In my heart, I'm thinking, I hope he falls. Like, (laughs) I hope he falls, because I wanted to do it first, right? The thought of him possibly achieving something that I had not achieved yet, just gnawed at me. And it wasn't even a certainty yet. He was in the process and I was already thinking, I hope he fails. That's jealousy. 
because I can see the possibility of him succeeding and I just want him to come down to my level with me where he is as miserable as I am after I have tried and failed. And the ultimate example we see in the Bible of jealousy is the story of Cain and Abel. Right at the beginning, both of them bring their offerings to God and God accepts Abel's, but he doesn't accept Cain's and so Cain gets angry. And it says that the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And can we all finish the story, right? They go out into the field and Cain kills his brother Abel. This is the point where feeling turns into action. We can't control the feeling, but what we have the ability to do is we have the ability to control where we take that feeling. What do we do when we feel this feeling of jealousy? Well, Cain killed his brother. And my guess is that none of us have done, gone that far, but we do know how to do damage to someone. We know how to use our words to cut people down. We're judgmental. We're bad friends. We talk behind somebody's back. We get really sneaky. And in the case of the religious leaders in this story, they beat them. They physically beat them. And all of those things are just things that we use to feed into this feeling that we call jealousy. And what jealousy ultimately does is it keeps us from being able to recognize what God is doing in and through other people. Jealousy keeps us from being able to see what God is doing in and through other people. And the religious leaders were so concerned with maintaining their power and their control that they missed what God was doing right in their very midst, in the city that they lived in, in the church that they worked for. And we as readers need to recognize that this event represents an expansion of God's kingdom. Signs and wonders are being done by the apostles. I mean, people are bringing their sick just hoping that a shadow passes, that Peter's shadow passes over them so that they may be healed. This is amazing stuff. It's amazing stuff. And the only thing that the religious leaders can think about is the possibility of losing something that they have. They're thinking about the possibility of losing their power and their control. And therefore, they're missing the amazing things that God is doing right in their midst. And we do the same thing. We miss what God is doing because we are so focused on the absence of something in our life that somebody else has. And the question for me all week has been, what do we do about that? Okay, so it's a feeling we all feel. It's a universal feeling that we all feel jealousy at points in our life. What do, well, what do we do with that? And what I think the scripture tells us here is to push back against jealousy. The first thing that sticks out to me is what Peter says. We commit ourselves to obeying God, not man. We commit ourselves to obeying God, not man. And this is a commitment to not be swayed by what culture and politics and the world says that we need to be, do, or have. 
but to fully rely and place ourselves at the feet of our Savior, learning to be content in Him. And when we're confronted with our jealousy, we have to choose obedience over living into that feeling. And now this is, I have to admit, a prototypical Christian answer, right? Obey God, not Most of us, if we went to Sunday school, this is something that we heard. It's something you're like, oh man, that's just like, it's true, but it's overplayed and it's overused and all of these things. And so let's dig into the details here. What does that actually mean? First and foremost, it means that we're replacing jealousy with kindness. We're replacing our jealousy with purposeful kindness. To those people. It means that we are finding security in our identity as a child of God and not in what we have or don't have. It means that we are pursuing contentment in the Lord, not in our possessions or our achievements or our accomplishments. And it means that when we do all of those things, that we have the ability to witness to God in the midst of of the world in which we live in. Now, the second thing we learn from this passage is to pursue contentment and to push back on jealousy is we need to listen to wise counsel in our lives. We need to listen to wise counsel. We see that the Sadducees want to kill all of the apostles. And it, out of this sense of anger and it's out of this sense of jealousy, and there's a, a Pharisee who stands up in the group named Gamaliel who changes their minds. And it's Gamaliel who says, if this is not of God, then it's going to fail on its own. But if God is at work through these people, we cannot stop what is happening. And this is the first time, if you look at the book of Acts, that there, this is the first time that a speech by a non-Christian is recorded in the narrative. It's the first time a non-Christian has an extended piece of dialogue in this book. And that means it's incredibly significant. We need to pay attention to it. In the same way that the religious leaders chose to hear what Gamaliel was saying and listen to wise counsel in their lives. You see, we need people in our lives in the midst of all of the muck and the mire and the dirtiness and the messiness of everyday life who help us to pick up our head and to notice our jealousy as it comes to bear and as we treat people poorly and things of that nature. And we need those people in our lives who are going to encourage us towards contentment, to find our worth and our value in what God says about us, not what we have and what we don't have. And we need people in our lives that will allow us to see what God is doing in the present moment when our jealousy will not allow us to. Because when we pursue both obeying God and allowing wise counsel to speak into our lives, our hearts are released from jealousy and we begin to love people well again. Quite frankly, to put it plainly, our culture sets us up for failure when it comes to jealousy. Most of modern marketing is trying to create jealousy so that it's something that you have to have or you need to buy that is something that you can't live without. 
So our world is a place where we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. We spend time on social media. We glorify athletic ability. We glorify academic success. We glorify musical talent. And we judge others based on the clothes that, we, that they wear. And choosing to celebrate others instead of being jealous flies in the face of every bit of the cultural norm. And the early church is an example that Luke wants us as the church 2,000 years later to follow. The new movement of the people of God can be measured by its staying power. The new movement of the people of God will be measured by its staying power. The church has staying power because it's committed to obeying God and not man, and it has staying power because it's willing to listen to wise counsel, and it's not. And it's in those spaces that when we begin to celebrate others and recognize what God is doing in and through them, that we begin to walk in freedom. We begin to walk in freedom because it comes in the form of contentment. We're not constantly looking at something else and desiring something else that somebody has, but we're fully viewing them as for who they are not for what they bring to the table. And our example in this area of jealousy ultimately serves as a testament to who Jesus is to the community around us. If we're a community that can genuinely celebrate the successes and the achievements of others, that's a community that people want to be a part of. That's a community that invites people in and celebrates them for who they are, not what they bring to the table. That's the kind of community that I want to be. Thanks again for tuning in to the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Make sure you are following Crosstalk on social media at Crosstalk underscore TXST. If you have any questions for the Crosstalk team, you can send us a message on those pages. We will see you here again next week.